Hey everyone, John Andrew here. Welcome back everybody. On today's episode, finding yourself in music. Getting back on the tractor. And squeezing your cheeks. Oh yeah. This is Obstacle Course. Here we go. So Andrew, today we had Rosemary. Rosemary. No, it was Rosemary. Rosemary. Yeah, it was Rosemary. Rosemary Barnes. Yeah. She is someone we've met through a few different conferences, thanks to Your Entrepreneur Society once yeah. again. And she is a professional speaker. She's a musician. She has immersed herself in the power of language and music. Everything to do with human voice. That is her jam. So it was a little unnerving to say to have someone like that on our podcast we had, we had a professional of what we do in the room so yeah and we were interviewing her and uh, she was listening to our voices and all our weird phrases that we try and eliminate but uh it's interesting because we we i found i just forgot that immediately because she's so wonderful to talk to she's so authentic and vulnerable and and uh it was it was just such a wonderful conversation a, a lot of warmth and wisdom coming from Rosemary. And I have a question for you, John. Yeah, go ahead. Have you ever played a musical instrument? I did. I played the trumpet. I used to blow out the spit on people in front of me. <laughs> How long did you do that for? Blow out the spit every time. But I also <laughs> played the trumpet for like a year. In at what age? Grade seven. Nice. I played the euphonium in grade six and seven. Did you make that instrument up? No. It's like a tuba. Yeah. But a little smaller. Oh. They wouldn't give me the tuba. Why not? I wouldn't have been able to lift it up above my head. I, I wondered. <laughs> what sound does the euphonium make? Brrr. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, a lot of those. So you and I both, not a lot of musical inclination. No, no, I can't even keep a beat. Although, you know, I wasn't on our choir. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't even laugh. I really was. I traveled around. No. Uh, I actually had to try out for this group. It was called Sunshine. Okay, yeah. go on. <laughs> What did, what style of group? Uh, acapella. Wow. Why? Because the religious upbringing that I was part of, it was wrong to play instruments. Huh. Yeah. So you had to try out for Sunshine. Oh, I did. Did you make it? Well, you know, what's funny is I thought I was going to make it as a bass. And I made it as a, uh, what do they call that? Uh, I don't even know what it's called treble? anymore. Yeah. Not, <laughs> not treble, tenor. Yeah. Okay. I was a tenor. So when they posted the list on the, on the door and I was like, tenor. John Close and I was like what <laughs> but I was just excited to travel but yeah so I, I, I did but I, I have a terrible voice so it must have been just a super small school or maybe my wonderful personality was enough for the group but it was honors choir too. Well, it was it wasn't just no, it the, was. all the regular folk and it was an honor that was yeah my, my kids said I was part of the original glee club do any records remain of that time records uh no they've all been destroyed okay that's unfortunate because we would definitely add that to an episode at some point. Yeah. So one of the, getting back to today's recording. <laughs> Thank God. I'm glad we went in that direction. <laughs> one of the most powerful notes that for me was Rosemary speaking about the act of pause in music. It's a, it's a, idea in music to have that deliberate pause and it's actually part of it and, and there's so much power active pause yeah yeah and it's very deliberate and it one of the one of my favorite moments was when we talked about how we're so we have such an issue with 
taking a little bit of time for ourselves and to look inwards and to just examine our identity and what's going on inside our own minds and our own narrative. And so I, I will invite you to both take something from that part of the conversation as well as find a way of practicing doing that on your own time. Yeah, I was just pausing. Um. <laughs> Thanks for taking all of the seriousness out of my, my yeah, point. I realize I did that, <laughs> but it was important to me to upstage you. Um, yeah, no, exactly. What stood out to me about um, her her story was, and, and you'll hear this, is her whole thing is confidence. If she had a trademark, it would be confidence. And she had an experience as an 11-year-old that would shatter most people's confidence, perhaps for the rest of their life. And I'll let you... Um, I'll let you in, you know, be able to take that in. I won't spoil that for you. But that that's what stood out to me is something that could have kept her down forever or, or, or you know, kept her away from that realm for the rest of her life. She used as a catapult to, to now do the great work she does. She's written three books. She travels literally all over the world speaking about how to be more confident in everyday speaking and in public speaking. Yeah, it is a wide-ranging and powerful conversation. And I'm sure everyone will get their own little piece of knowledge or a tool that, that you can use as you go forth. For sure. And you know, Andrew, this this episode inspired me to maybe take up the trumpet again. So perhaps you can take up, what was your instrument called again? The euphonium. Yeah, perhaps we can make a band, trumpet and euphonium. Obviously, I have an angelic voice. Yeah, I'd rather I just could, hear you sing. I could sing. You can be the vehicles. treble. It's yeah. It's, it was like a vision of the future. You're yeah. still the treble. I will. I'll be the treble, and you will play the euphonium in the background. Beautiful. All right, you can look Come. forward to that, everyone. Coming next week. <laughs> Enjoy. <laughs> So I would consider you an expert in language and speech. Thank you. And I've had the opportunity to hear you speak at a conference and Mm -hmm. have spoken with you a bit since. And one of the tricks that you spoke about was in clenching your cheeks. (laughs) So uh, for our listeners, we love offering practical tips and things that people can take with them. So do you want to just... Touch on that method. Touch on the cheeks. Touch on the cheeks. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. Um, well, we're going to be careful and tell you which cheeks. The <laughs> We've all heard so much about ing- in, embrace the core, engage the core. Yes. Uh, it's all over. You're nobody if you don't know where your core is. Well, your core is right down in your visceral muscles, you know, right mm-hmm. down where, where um, the power sense is. And... If you engage that, your whole body becomes engaged with it. All of that engagement you need for body support for speaking. It does more than that. It helps you breathe. It helps you stand straight. So here it is in a nutshell. You want to make a diamond out of a lump of coal. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> now, <laughs> it takes a lot of time and a lot of pressure to turn a lump of coal into a diamond. And so where do we have on our body that can create that kind of pressure? Well, I'm suggesting to you that by tightening your cheeks, mm-hmm. not the ones on your face. No. No, no the backside, the mm-hmm. the um, the back of the front, the derriere, the keister, the dupa. Yeah, all those. Put a lump of coal, <laughs> insert, and squeeze. Right. Now, don't squeeze anything else. Just the glutes. 
In doing that, you tighten your, your core muscles and all of a sudden your confidence level just gets, it just soars because you're engaged. Yeah. Your core is holding you steady. The, the shakes will go away. The butterflies will fly in formation. You will be able to breathe deeper, feed your brain more oxygen, generally appear a lot more clever mm-hmm. simply by walking. Now, that doesn't mean that forever you have to walk around with a, anything inserted. Yes. What, <laughs> no. It just means that after a couple of times of doing that and feeling that tremendous sense of power and control that you have, that your body likes it. Hmm. And the minute you go up to speak or at any time when your confidence is being shaken a little, your body will automatically tighten your core for you. Therefore making you feel in control. And that is, control is such a funny thing. Yeah, We don't have any. It's the illusion. Mm-hmm. But if that's all we've got, then let's go with it. <laughs> uh, if we want to uh, elude ourselves, then, then yeah, that's the best thing to do. Tighten your core. But when you're speaking, when you're under stress, when you're in negotiations, when something has gone wrong, it's the last thing that we think about. So we use muscle memory. Mm-hmm. The muscle memory is the strongest we, ha- we have to remember anything, is by muscle memory. Add, uh, add, a, add a gesture, add a movement, deliberately take a step in one direction, and it will, it will trigger the, the mental memory through the muscle memory. It's very, very powerful mm-hmm. uh, because it's kinetic. And that's the way we learn best, is by doing. So take control of your confidence by making a diamond. And maybe <laughs> we do want to lump a coal in our stocking this Christmas. Maybe we do. <laughs> but, uh, don't leave it in the stocking. No. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm feeling more confident already. For All sure. Right. I'm changing how I'm sitting already. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, and, the, and the shoulders kind of follow that. Too. That's right. And that's why, right? Your whole body adjusts. Not just a core thing, right? Nope. All of a sudden you notice your shoulders aren't, you're not slumping forward. Right. You're not... Yeah, I like it. It takes that one little glute tightening thing. Yeah. Takes care of so many of the ancillary parts. They, mm-hmm. Now you don't have to worry about them. Mm-hmm. You, right. can, you can just do that one thing twice or three times, and then it becomes automatic, and you don't have to do anything at all. Right. <laughs> it's fantastic. It's a life hack. <laughs> it is. Tim Ferriss showed up. Um, so you are... Uh, an engaging public speaker now you're a writer you have a, a blog as in addition to the three books i recommend both and you uh you have a great background in being in theater in teaching in leading and so before you were helping people with their performance and their speaking and and their confidence and control what brought you to that Oh, do you have a very long time? <laughs> well, see, here's the thing. On a previous episode, we admitted to the guests that we creeped their Facebook. Okay. And they said that was creepy that you did that. Oh, I don't think that's creepy. No, I mean, that's what it's for, right? <laughs> and so this morning, instead of creeping your Facebook, I creeped your LinkedIn page. Ah. So totally different, obviously. And this is how I'm learning all these wonderful facts about you. And I, I was scrolling back, seeing sort of the timeline of your professional life. Mm. And that's where I began to see, oh, wow, you've, you've had, led such an interesting life. And that's where I discovered that you had a background in radio, specifically with classical music. And you were you were in charge of it all. You chose the music. You chose... And that's about all I know about it. So I'm going to turn it over to you now to tell me all about that 
interesting time of your life. In my in my previous years, so many things that really touched my soul had to do with music. Mm. Uh, music brought me great joy. Uh, when when things were tense or when there were problems, uh, creating music uh, meant that it was a holiday. When you're involved in a, a, a score. Uh, you can't think about anything else. It's like a, a three-hour rehearsal is a three-hour vacation from life's turbulence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it gave me great peace. It didn't always. It didn't always. Uh, when I, We moved, my family moved when I was 11 years old. Uh, and we moved out of a what was then an inner city school, but we didn't know it was inner city. It was just city. The city was so small. Uh, but we moved from cubby holes and separate entrances for the boys and girls and cloakrooms to a school where every every class had four sections of it, you know, seven A, B, C, and D. And it was a separate school. And it had lockers and a cafeteria and two gymnasiums. And <laughs> it was intimidating it was it made me feel less than but i decided that if i was going to be there i was going to be there as me so i went up on stage during a school assembly and i very happily sang if i had a hammer without background just me standing there singing and in retrospect i realized that everyone in the gym was i had their attention but all i could see was that I was frightened of what the repercussions were going to be and they were worth the fear. I became the target of severe bullying. Uh, eggs and bananas in the head all day. It, you know, it was it was those sorts of tactics. And that I could take. But when they started attacking my family's home, mm-hmm. that was uh, very difficult because I knew it was my fault my family's home that my parents worked so hard for. We didn't have much. Um, We had very, very little, but what we had, we worked hard for and we took care of. So when my family's windows were broken in the house, that was my fault. And I knew it in my 11-year-old brain. That was even takeable. But when they started, I had a, a sister have a sister who's about 11 years younger than I am and they started destroying her toys and they started destroying her little swimming pools and her tricycles and I broke mm-hmm. I completely broke because this art when I was 11 and there's no kids between me and that new baby she was my baby I know she was my mother's baby but as far as I was concerned she was mine and to have her being harmed because I had the audacity to get up on stage and sing was too much for me to take, and I broke. Uh, I had a full-blown nervous breakdown at age 11 because I knew that I had destroyed my family's home. Uh, And I didn't play the victim card. I've never played the victim card. Uh, It wasn't poor me. It wasn't, oh, why are they doing this to me? I knew in my heart and in my soul that my family's grief was caused directly by me and an action that I took. 
Well, eventually we came out of that. Uh, but at the end of the junior high year, the music slash phys ed teacher came up to me and she said, I want you to uh, go to this this one month long camp. It was called Music Camrose. <laughs> and I didn't realize that it was the first year of its existence. I thought, it, you know, what did I know? Anyway, she wrote me this letter and she said that I should go. And she said, uh, she outlined parameters. Well, here's the thing is that I was really young for uh, the grade I was in because I was one of those guinea pigs uh, in the education system. I was part of the acceleration system, which meant that instead of a year of schooling in a year, I did a year and a half. Mm. So that by the time I was, by the time I started university, I was a rifled 16. Mm. Uh, But anyway, back to junior high school, I was young. And so that meant that I couldn't go to this music camp because they wanted the, the age limit. Well, I was two years too young. So she said, I will take care of that. Come back at the end of the day. So I did. I went back at the end of the day and she handed me uh, a letter and uh, a letter to my mother and father. And she said, I want you to read them. And I said, well, I, I have to go home. Uh, I, I can't be late. So I took, the, I took the things home and I was very uh, nervous because I didn't want to ask my parents to spend money on me. After all, I had been bad. Now, they didn't think so. I did. Uh, so I'm watching my mom, and she's reading this letter from the teacher, and tears are rolling down her cheeks. And I'm thinking, oh, God, what have I done now? What else did I do wrong? And then she was smiling. And the point of it is that the teacher had written this wonderful letter, both to the the organizers of the music camp and to my parents singing my praises as mature and wonderful and wise and and accomplished and what a tragedy it would be to the world of music if I wasn't allowed to explore this option. Well my parents are many many things uh, and extraordinary parents are one of them. They absolutely believe that when a child shows an interest in anything that they should be encouraged. So off I went to this one month long summer music camp and I found who I was for a great number of years. We change over the years. What we are today is not what we are in 20 years. But for that moment, I had found Nirvana. Mm. Uh, And because I came out of that experience feeling that I could do something, really do something. And I was really good at it. And I didn't have to work at it. And it was a, a, and it brought me such great joy that when I came back and started high school in, the, in September, it was a whole different Rosemary that showed up. Mm. It wasn't the beaten, dog-eared, uh, I deserve to be beaten kind of animal. It was, I've, there's something about me that others can't do regularly. And I felt just a little bit special. So I'm curious how you overcame that fear from the previous experience of putting yourself on the line Mm. and showcasing your abilities to go to that camp. And obviously you you were still able to express that strength in, in music when you were there. It was because the whole... Everyone there was music. 
it wasn't just singing it was orchestras and it was it was it was I was surrounded by music everyone there was there for music personalities were just something to be accepted or ignored as necessary as long as you could make music together and so it was it gave us uh, it gave me uh, an anchor it created an anchor. No one was going to pick on me or belittle me because I sang, because everyone there did. And it there had to be 200 kids there, all involved in creating music and the joy that that brings. So it leaked into, uh, it leached right into the core of who I am, which must have been there all the time anyway. Otherwise, why did I go up on stage in the first place? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it allowed me... It allowed me to say, uh, I have a tool in my toolkit now. I know that I can sing, I can make music, and it speaks to me and it gladdens my soul. And there are others like me. I'm not as alone as I thought. It's a good thing to know as a child. Mm -hmm. Because there was, in my family, I was the black sheep. Uh, My family does not understand me. <laughs> and I can't say as I blame them, I don't understand me either. But the point is that where, where my, my family lives in the world of fear and lives in the world of scarcity, I never did. Uh, and they thought I was a little bit cuckoo crazy, but hey, she lives here, we have to love her. The, and they do. I mean, my family is, they know how to love and they know how to work. And they do both to the extreme. But there was nobody like me. There was nobody that that responded viscerally to music like I do. And music to me is mathematical wizardry, wizardry mm-hmm. entwined emote, with emotion and story. Hmm. Uh, and it's such a beautiful combination of left and right brain. It's such an entire experience. And I lost that when I was being bullied for loving that. And it was too hard for me to deal with because it gave me such great joy and now my joy was causing my family pain. Mm-hmm. You could have lost it forever. I could have. You could have. So yeah. this, the woman, uh, her name is Pamela Farmer, the teacher mm-hmm. that rescued my soul out of purgatory. Uh, I found her uh, about 25 years later. Mm. And I, I just thought, I have to thank this woman. Mm-hmm. This woman changed my life. And so I found her. She was still in the phone book, for heaven's <laughs> sake. And I called her and I said, uh, Miss Farmer, I, don't, I really don't think you're going to remember me. And she said in her lovely British accent, Rosemary, it's Rosemary. I, wouldn't, I would know that voice anywhere. How are you, my dear? Oh, that's special. So we had tea and it was grand and it was it was wonderful to be able to thank her. It, it, uh, hmm. um, I, it didn't make any difference to her or me. We had lived through it. But wow, it sure does feel good to say thank you. How um, much did she inspire you to then teach later in your life? Oh, yes. And then a million, a million uh, occupations later, I became a teacher. Only to discover that uh, teaching is one of my gifts. Uh, I don't know if you believe in sacred gifts, and even if you don't, 
teaching is something it, it, teaching is not something I always do it's something I am mm-hmm. that that one teacher made such a difference in one person's life definitely shaped how I taught it definitely shaped how I taught uh, and I was teaching uh, eventually in my happy place I was teaching music and drama so before that you had you had worked on the radio uh, the ra- oh yes that is how yes. this conversation started <laughs> well what happened was that continuing on with the music um, I began to perform more and more with with more and more classical groups and we formed a group of us formed a, a small group of six people called something musical and we specialized in madrigals uh, where every every voice has a different part that can stand on its own as a melody but that is interwoven with mm-hmm. all the other parts and it's magic mm-hmm. uh, one of the one of the fellows that we sang with the tenors had a radio show on CJCA and it was classical and he also had a rock show on Saturday nights and I used to hang out with him <laughs> during the shows and when he was a bit of a flibberty gibbet and it took him about two minutes for don't you love that word <laughs> yeah so I looked at Andrew so, I was like never heard that but I love it first flibberty gibbet <laughs> uh, and within you know 22 and a half seconds he was tired of it and off he flittered to something else so I simply oh, okay. took over his work I simply, uh, he said he was resigning, but he had found a replacement, and they said, okay, and that was that. Hmm. It was just awful. So I took over his classical radio show, Hmm. and it was incredible to me that I could sit in front of a microphone, and I could say words that other people would hear without seeing my face, without seeing the body, that it was purely the voice that was carrying the message. Now, public speakers use the voice as only one of their tools. In fact, not the strongest of the tools. But in radio, the voice is all you've got. Now consider that my specialty was voice. It was such a natural uh, connection between singing and speaking. All the business that I learned in music about tempo and pacing and the value of silence that so many public speakers are terrified of. In music, we call them rests. Mm. But they can't be just blank holes. There have to be active rests Mm. uh, Mm. so that the energy carries through, so that there's a sense of expectation going through. Well, speakers do the same thing. And I honed that and played with that as I was doing the radio announcing sparking my interest that everything in music can be translated to the speaking voice as well. So therefore, when I started to speak, it was through music. The brain part of what I was saying was absolutely extra. What I was doing was playing with voice. Mm -hmm. And it was fun. (laughs) And you do that for about five years? I did that for about five years. Yeah. Wow. Now, since then, I've had my own podcast, and I had a show on iHeartRadio ah. and the like of that. And I love those. I love radio. But I'm also a full-bodied speaker, wow. and it is so much easier to speak once you know how to align all the messages, the, the verbal, the facial, the physical uh those have to be aligned or you don't get the message right. Mm-hmm. In fact, it can confound the message and make it 
pointless if your messages aren't aligned. But my radio days is when I was aligning all of those thoughts. Then I went, then I went to university and my heyday was over. (laughs) My three year high school heyday of joy and bliss. I was the queen of the drama room and everybody in this large school knew me and I was so happy doing what I was doing. I didn't care if they liked me, noticed me or anything else. It also helped a great deal that my brother is three years older than I am. That meant his friends were three years older than I was. Remembering that I was young for my age, that put us in high school at the same time. I was in grade 10, he was in grade 12, and my brother had friends. And it's really nice to have (laughs) a brother with friends that are exactly of dating age. (laughs) Now, what I didn't realize at the time was that my brother's friends were coming to hang out with me at my locker. I didn't realize in high school what that would look like. The perception was this grade 10 kid is hanging out with these good-looking grade 12 guys. (laughs) So I have my brother to thank for a lot of the popularity there. Uh, But then I started university at age 16, a very, very, very little guppy in a great big ocean. Mm -hmm. And all the confidence that I felt in my high school days and beyond vanished like a puff of smoke. For three years, I didn't speak to anyone. I didn't make a friend. Finally, in the fourth year, I walked myself out of that. But the first, the first, and considering that I was taking drama at the time, that's saying something. What was the turning point in the fourth year? Uh, In the fourth year, I, okay, one of those friends that came over to visit me, Uh, turned out to be my husband Um, but the point is that we had tried dating a couple of times and because the 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 chemistry was so strong it was frightening at that age and so we damn near killed each other a couple of times (laughs) before we actually started dating which just happened to be in fourth year (laughs) nice (laughs) Uh, but yes it was miserable it was absolute misery I'd get up in the morning I'd go to my and I loved my classes but the social aspect, when you're 16 years old and you're, the, the other people in your classes are wanting to go to the pub, and I'm too ashamed to say, I can't go, I'm just little, I'm just 16. I, I thought I would be mocked. I thought I would be, I definitely didn't feel I would be celebrated for any of that. So I just withdrew and withdrew and withdrew and withdrew until... I met my husband, and then it didn't matter what anybody else thought. Or what you thought of yourself. Or what I thought of myself. Uh, My husband and I have been married 42 years now. Wow, that's great. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and we've seen each other through hell and back again. Hmm. Uh, But he, as much as that teacher changed my life, so did my husband. You know, before we move to the next stage... um, I think it's important to ask all our listeners who have children at this age, you know, the turbulent teens and they're going through bullying and bullying is, is a, is a big deal. Um, especially cyber bullying. What advice would you give to the parents, um, to help their children navigate this tough stage? First of all, be prepared that the child, your child 
is going through self-imposed hell and to take it very seriously. Uh, it's, it's very easy to shrug it off and say, oh, it'll pass and right. not take it seriously. The amount of damage that can be done can be lifelong. Uh, and no time, at no time, other than in these early teen years, uh, when everyone is trying to find out who they are and some are spreading their wings to be brilliant and others are spreading their wings to be tough. Mm -hmm. Your child needs you more than they did when they were infants and reliant on you for life. They are still reliant on you for life. Be there for them. For parents with their kids going through this, make sure that they know that you are there to support them. Uh, and it doesn't take much more than that. Be there for them. Keep the lines of communication open no matter what draw them out use negotiation tactics if you have to but draw them out find out what is really uh, how they're really feeling and whether they are considering whether they are blaming themselves for this whether they are dropping into victim mentality of poor me poor me or whether they are going to come out fighting and become even more brutal than the original bullies Keep those lines of communication open. Just tell them you're there. Mm -hmm. When a person has been through significant challenges, as you did as a teenager, and as many do in different points of their lives, how does one rebuild or construct a a healthy self-image as as you mentioned you blamed yourself um, in university you thought you were an outcast or or not good enough or would be mm -hmm. would be mocked which is all just the story that you were telling yourself yep it wasn't wasn't true it wasn't it wasn't wrong but it was your story at that yep. time so how does one go about repairing that self-image in my experience and of course that's all I can speak to uh, it took an outside party who hadn't been involved in the trauma in the first place and believe me when I tell you that being bullied is full-blown trauma as it's it's PTSD as much as watching someone being killed in front of you, having your identity stolen and come called into question by bullies is every bit as traumatic as anything else you can go through. Uh, even the death of my son, while it tore my heart out, it did not affect my identity as much as those bullies did at the ripe old age of 11 and 12. How do you rebuild it was because, well, in my case, that one woman wrote a letter that said I was good at something. Mm -hmm. For me, that was all it took. Uh, but remembering that I always erred on I must be good. When I was a teenager going through the dating, this is how much I was good. Uh, if I was out on a date and 
the peer, my peers were doing something that made me, gave me pause. I would say to myself, self, I would say, when you go home, are you going to be able to proudly tell mom or dad what you did tonight? And if I couldn't, that didn't mean I wasn't going to do it. It just meant that I would think about it and give myself, uh, uh, give myself some control over it that way. My mother was very good at saying, if you ever don't want to do something, just blame me. <laughs> <laughs> so to rebuild then is to rebuild who you believe yourself to be. Rebuild on what makes you you. Fully aware that in the horrible, first of all, let me say this, uh, with all the love I have in my heart, grade eight girls are the meanest creatures on the face of the earth. Wolverines hide. Mm. Uh, we, the grade eight girls do heal, but they are so cruel to the world, but they are especially cruel to themselves. You know, it's funny you mentioned grade eight. Um, I, I was bullied mercilessly in grade eight. I'm so sorry. Yeah, I, uh, I just moved to, an, uh, I think moving was a big part of it. I yes. moved, moved to uh, Manitoba from Saskatchewan and... Um, I was wide-eyed, excited for my new school experience, picked out my new outfit, all that kind of stuff. Showed up the first day, I was different, and uh, I got bullied the whole year. And I, I remember coming home, you know, my parents didn't even know how bad it was. And um, the next year I decided I was not going to be bullied anymore. So I became that person you talked about. Um, I became worse than the bullies, and I, I put my my uh, intentions on one of, the, one of the boys and just made his life a living hell. And... Uh, similar to you but in a totally different way i reached out to him 20 years later online and uh just admitted what a profound asshole i was and begged for his forgiveness and he was so kind and, and gracious back and, oh. ju and just said um oh john we were we were all not our best selves at that time oh. and uh so when you mentioned grade eight it reminded me of that story and and of course the new movie that has just came out um, called eighth grade is a, is a profound um, exploration of, of that difficult, difficult time. How did you feel when he, with his gracious acceptance of oh, your apology? Oh, it's tears. I mean, it was just, I, 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 I could move on. Yes. Right? Yes. Could move on. Uh, oh. And therein lies one of the ways of finding, of regaining your conscious, your, your consciousness, which is directly linked to your confidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to find a way to move on to something better. And then making sure that you go back and make sure the bridge is still safe for others to cross too. Mm -hmm. uh, if we, the bullied and the bullies, can heal, it gives me great faith that during these, you know, the junior high school years are cruel. Emotionally, physically, uh, uh, mentally, everything hurts together because we're all one piece. But if we can survive that trauma and come out to be people sitting around microphones talking about life's crises and how to get through them with a smile on their face, <laughs> and yet we, we lived in that world too, then others can too. Yeah. And it's all a mental exercise. You have to know who you are. This is what I teach when I'm teaching uh, people to to 
understand where their confidence lives. We have to know what we value. But how many times do we actually ask our children what means a lot to them? What do our children value naturally? We don't ask them. When, when I was teaching high school theater, it has to be a safe place. If I'm going to ask my students to quack like a duck, then they have to know that it's safe to quack like a duck and nobody's going to pull out their tail feathers. Right. So I spent a lot of time creating that, that place of safety. I noticed in this place of safety how the students that knew their values, knew what they stood for, were always the leaders. Even even though all felt safe to be who they were, there were some natural leaders that were emerging. Not to say that the others wouldn't find their leadership skills later, but at that time, it was every single time the students that were the leaders, the students that were the innovators, they were also the students who had examined their values mm-hmm. and they knew what they believed in. Now, in early years, we call that standing for a cause you know we go through that causal stage of development where uh, you know we're going to save the whales and we're going to uh, plant a tree and those are wonderful and i am not mocking them but causes can help find identity hmm. and that's why we become so causal it's because we're looking for we're looking for something to identify with something to to make us connected to do you think causes are egoic in nature they can they they don't start out as being egoic but they certainly can turn into it i'm not saying that everybody does it and i'm not saying causes are frivolous no. at all at all at all but i'm saying that some people never grow past the causal stage into the philosophical stage right. it's maslow's hierarchy of development uh, we we reach a certain level and most of the population stays at that one level it is, it is the few that go up into the, the tip-tops of the triangles of uh, taking knowledge to make to, into analytical. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a progression, it's a growth, and it's not the path that everyone always takes, so there's no criticism about it. But the cause uh, is a way of finding uh, yourself or something to hang your hat on, as I said. So one of the ways to begin to find confidence, what happened to me was I was surrounded by other like-minded people, which is of course why peer pressure is so strong in the first place. But if you can direct your energies into a group of like-minded on the positive side people, it will go a long way to helping you find your identity. Find your tribe, right? Find your tribe. Mm-hmm. And it restores that confidence. Well, it can begin to. Yeah. Once you have confidence in one area, then you can start to spread it to others. Mm-hmm. I found confidence that I could create beautiful music. That shouldn't have been able to be enough to carry th- me through the rest of my life. But the process of finding that one piece of me that was special was so sweet and so uh, spine-tingling. And one of my values is curiosity. So I had to find out if anything else would do that too, hmm. which accounts for my seemingly scattered progression of uh, occupations and careers. In fact, 
they're all related. Yeah, so I wanted to dig into that a little bit. And the relation that I've noticed is that each of them are aligned with that purpose of yours. And, and it's doing the something of deep meaning to you. It's the, the music, obviously, and but then morphing into the teaching because of how impactful that was in, in your development and giving you confidence. So I see it as an inspiration that you can find work and develop a career that is aligned with what is truly meaningful and how might people be able to do that more well it's not a a do it once and be done process we change over time oh yeah our values change over the time and and we need to be reassessing that regularly but a, a single, if I was, for example, if I was to completely strip down what I learned from that experience from that music camp, I learned that, first of all, I'd never been away from home before, never mind for a whole month, and living in a college dorm room. <laughs> Woo! There was so much learning going on there. So I learned that I could survive without my parents. And on noodles. And on ramen noodles. <laughs> exactly. I learned that early. Uh, no, the, the lunches were catered. Oh, <laughs> but, very nice. uh, yeah, an 11-year-old, sh- and microwaves weren't out yet. Oh, okay. Yeah, remember... I was just I, thinking of myself in college again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I must remind you that I am older than dirt. Okay. And when, you, when you're that old, you know stuff. Okay. okay. So, <laughs> guys, sound like one of those little old ladies. Now, listen to me. Uh, but what else I learned was so I could, I learned I could be independent and I had always longed for independence. I bought my first car when I was 16 years old. Wow. My very own first car. What kind I, of car was it? Yeah. It was a, it was a Plymouth Cricket. <laughs> oh, wow. And it was a screaming, eye-sucking blue. It used to wave at me from parking lots. Couldn't lose that little thing for, but it, it wasn't a car. It was my independence. Yeah. So going to this one month long summer camp, first time away from home, scared to bloody death of my own shadow, taught me I could survive on my own, that I had merits of my own, that I wasn't just riding on anybody else's coattails. And there was nobody else there to support me. I was on my own and I thrived in it. So it taught me that, that I had strength in myself, that I could do something all by myself. It taught me skills of getting along with people who were open to being friendly. It it taught me that what they wanted to talk, that I should just shut up and listen and not keep turning it back into what I wanted to say. It taught me that all the instructors, all the professors, all had different ways of sharing the beauty that is music. And so it occurred to me that if if we can share the same beauty through the bazillion kinds of music we create, then why can we not do that with speech? Hmm. And it occurred to me that everyone has a voice, not just for music, not just for speaking, but that everyone has a voice inside them that is longing to be heard. So if I could do good by listening, then I would have something to speak about. One of the biggest lessons that we can learn in life is to listen more. 
talk less. Funny that I'm a speaker, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) A little irony in there. Anyway, what were we talking about? Your fascinating life. My fascinating life. And, And the connection between purpose and careers and how you've managed to create a life where you've been working with purpose. It took me a lot of years to realize that this is what I want to do. Uh, and I don't begrudge any of the of the offshoots and tangents that I went off on. Everything is an opportunity for learning something new. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I do have to give, once again, it goes back to parenting. I have to give my parents so much credit. We had nothing, absolutely nothing. And my father worked... Uh, we moved off the farm when I was six months old because <laughs> his parents foreclosed on him. So he had to take everything he owned, including his two children, sell everything else off this farm. And he packed it all into a 1950 Chevy. Everything, including his family, that was all he had anymore. And we went to the big city where he found a job working for a dollar a day, piling lumber. Wow. Uh, we didn't have a table, we didn't have beds, we didn't have chairs, we had nothing, and we were so bloody happy, we didn't know how miserable we were. Yeah. The, uh, they felt, my parents felt they had never had so much money in their whole life, working for a dollar a day. Every t- as I said, every time a child shows interest in something, they encourage that child to pursue it. So I had piano lessons. My brother had music lessons. Uh, I took swimming lessons and discovered that for most of my life I was a rock. Hmm. Uh, Because of a breathing problem, by the way, which fits right in there too. Uh, We even, I was shocked out of my mind and just thrilled beyond belief when Barbie dolls came out and I wanted one so badly. But I was not going to ask my parents for anything. They didn't have anything to give. And so I didn't ask for a Barbie doll. And so I came home one day and there was this Barbie doll standing on my dresser and I wow. thought I had died and gone to heaven. It was fantastic. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> yeah. but for example, I was not interested in being in the kitchen with my mother. Not at all. I had no interest in that. I didn't want to pull weeds in the garden. I already knew that. I wanted to be on the tractor, on the fields of the farm. And I wanted to be the dirt master. (laughs) And so it wasn't long, as I said. I told Dad I wanted to do it, so he found a way. So it wasn't very long before I was on the old Ford tractor, and I had harrows behind me, and I was a tractor master. Oh, I had this, I had it. Until I took too (laughs) sharp a turn at the end of a row, and the harrows flipped and started crawling up on themselves. And it was a mess. And I was... Uh, the confidence was gone because confidence is knowing you can get yourself out of trouble and I didn't have that mm-hmm. so he came out that comes out in the field and all he said was he looked at me he said are you okay yeah I was bad I was and he looked at it and he said now is that nice I went say what he said so let's fix it so he had me help him fix it and then he made me get back on that tractor and finish, giving me back a little of the confidence that I had lost. So how did you apply that learning of getting back on the tractor to dealing with adversity that was to come in the rest of your life? 
what he what what I learned from that was first of all people are important more important than things and that giving people second chances and giving them more information and giving them a self giving them a chance to earn their own self-respect back is much more important than anything else we can do for anybody else hmm. give people a chance to earn back their own self-respect that means that they can fix a problem and that's beginning confidence confidence can't be built if someone swoops in and solves all your problems for you then you never know that you can do it yourself confidence is not built by someone berating you over your stupidity you already know it was stupid thank you very much confidence is built out of being given a chance to fix it mm. yeah. that's why some of our younger generations and i am stamping myself righteous little foot if anybody else bashes millennials in my earshot they get what for but millennials have never been given the chance to fail mm -hmm. Generation Z is the same thing. We've loved them so well. I'm to blame. I mean, my children were millennials, uh, but we didn't give them a chance to fail. We didn't give them a chance to build their confidence by having them dig themselves out of little problems. Well, and this is really the, the whole foundation of our, our podcast is the whole idea of this is how identities are formed. That's right. Through struggle, through obstacles, and allowing people to go through those what I think is remarkable about your story is, I mean, your brand, if you if you come up with, you know, the one word that that describes what you do professionally, confidence, you've said it so many times, and that's the name of the name of your brand. And I think back how that, that lo the little girl, the 11 year old on the stage and I can, you know, see, see in your eyes, it's still that that emotion is still there. Mm -hmm. and, and in that moment, that feeling of just the confidence must must have plummeted and you must have experienced just this trauma and so many people would never come back to that and somehow you use that exact experience to then move forward with music and move forward with helping people and i think that's the most remarkable thing of this whole story is is this this woman who travels around the world teaches people how to be confident it was born from a traumatic experience where you had lost it all you know, we fear things going wrong. We, we worry, what'll happen if, but, but, but. If we can respect life as a lifelong learning process mm -hmm. and use our mistakes as a schoolroom instead of a baseball bat, mm -hmm. if we can find a way to make it better the next time, and there's always a next time, then with that attitude, what can we not tackle? Yeah. I think it comes down to how you measure success. Some people measure success by the bank account. Some people measure success by how many people they can help. Some people measure success by their own yardstick. There are many ways to measure success. Don't let your yardstick be compared to anybody else's. Yeah. My yardstick for success is that I want people to be able to speak so others will listen. In order to do that, you have to learn to listen first. I want people to, I want people to realize that 
in and of themselves, they are a source of power. And we can control power. We can control our presence. We can dial it up and down. Too much presence, you come in as the intimidation. Too little presence, and you're the little mouse under the rug. We can all do the same with charisma. Charisma being that feeling that you, you make people other, other people feel special. That's charisma. Difference between presence and charisma. It's all learnable. Yeah, I was gonna. I was just gonna ask that. Like, charisma is often you think about you're born with it, or you. you he has charisma. She has charisma. <laughs> almost like it wasn't their choice. But it seems like you're saying we have a choice, and we can learn charisma. Is that right? That's where my work has taken me. Mm. That everything is learnable. Everything can be broken down into its component parts, and then put together with a beautiful melody line. <laughs> just like music. Mm-hmm. Music is nothing more than dots on a page, which, by the way, are only there so that other people can play your music too. But the tones that you hear all have relationship to each other, and that makes them either major or minor or dissonant. Or, and, but unless you've got a beautiful melody line, your life, in which to use those tools, of what value is it? So if I can take confidence, the the one thing that allows people to sit with their backs straight and their chests high, it's not pride. It's just the comfortable feeling that if there's a problem, you can handle it no matter what it is. That's confidence. But that's a big, big thing. Mm-hmm. So cut it into its pieces. Charisma is nothing more than the mindset of making the person you're listening to the most important person in the room. Mm. I like that. Honestly, listen to them. Feel what they're feeling. You don't have to do anything to make them feel special. All you have to do is listen. It's funny. I always thought charisma was like me focused, but you just said it's others mm-hmm. focused. I love that distinction. Charisma wow. is the it's art being of focused making, about others. Yeah. yeah, you focus on the other person. Wow. After all, why would you not? You already know who you are. There's nothing to learn there. Hmm. How about learning what they have to offer? Mm-hmm. Something else you mentioned in music earlier was the notion of the active pause mm-hmm. and using that for public speaking as a, a powerful tool. And it made me think of something that you wrote in your blog. And you quoted Ralph Waldo Emerson. And speaking uh, on one note about how relationships are basically the key to happiness. And then also that it's very important for people to be able to sit in silence and listen to their own intuition. Mm -hmm. And I heard of a recent study done by the University of Virginia and it said that 25% of women and the vast majority of men would rather subject themselves to uh, active shock therapy than sit for 15 minutes listening to their own inner voice in silence. Yeah. So how might people in this day and age, get more comfortable listening to that inner voice? Step one is knowing what your inner voice, that your inner voice is not uh, evil. 
Step one is trusting what the inner voice is going to say to you. That means that you have to know who you are. And you can't do that in a din. You can't do that at the frenetic pace of life. The starting point is to do a values analysis. I didn't give much credence to actually digging in and finding your values until I rebranded my company. The very wise woman, the branding expert who is extraordinary, sent me through a values analysis of my business. And then she said, with any luck, these match your personal values. And if they don't, why don't they? But she would ask me questions like, if your car, if you, if your business was represented by a car, what car would your business be? And I thought that was a very strange question to ask a speaking business. But it was so true. So my instant reaction was that I wanted to be a Mercedes. Not the blue one that you drove? No, not the cricket. (laughs) Not the cricket. (laughs) That cricket had a British carburetor and it used to waffle back and forth. So some days I'd have to double foot it, brake and gas to keep it from stalling. And other days uh, I'd have to keep my foot on the... um, Anyway. So not that one. So no, not that one. So this was going to be a classic Mercedes. Yeah. And then I thought about it for about 22 and a half seconds. And I came up with no... I wanted an Aston Martin Mm. to represent my business because it was sleek, it was modern, it was up-to-date, but it had all the power and all the tricks in its toolkit. I wanted to be James Bond's Aston Mm. Martin, thank you very much, Mm -hmm. with so many gadgets and tools at his beck and call that he could solve any problem that arose. But more affordable. But more, no, 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 no. If I could get this free and clear, if there was any price to it, not a bit. But is that not what confidence is? Yeah. Knowing that you have tools in your toolkit enough for whatever situation. And if you don't have one, that you're not afraid to say so and then go acquire it. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I like to say that we inherently possess the answers to all of our most difficult questions. I used to think so too until some people started asking me really hard questions. Uh, when my when my son died, oh my goodness, the emotions that come up when a parent loses a child are unspeakable. They are absolutely unspeakable. It's so interesting. What I'm now, I uh, am not religious. Uh, I, even in that moment of complete and total heartbreak, I never called to a God. Hmm. The buck stopped right there on my own lap. Uh, For better or worse, that's the way my psyche works. Uh, I I envy people who who have a belief, so a system so strong that they feel it can support them in times of extreme stress. I do not live with that benefit. I call on me, uh, which makes it both easier and harder. Uh, but, but the point is that when you have to sit in silence with that inner voice during times of stress, that's when you know who you are. Are you comfortable sharing what, what happened with your son? 
Oh, my poor son. Um, yeah, he, dry, he died of a fentanyl overdose. Mm. Uh, my son had a wild, a wild ride of life. Um, he was uh, a genius, way up in the, oh my God, he's smart category. Mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't until after he graduated with his second degree, this one in kinesiology, uh, that and the and the the structure of schooling fell away, and he opened a CrossFit gym. Cameron was a, a international gymnast. He represented Canada and Denmark for gymnastics. He was a scientist. He was a writer. He was uh, wow. an amazing man. Mm -hmm. But we didn't know he had Asperger's. He was so smart that he was able to find his own coping mechanisms all his life. Now, the inner voice immediately said, what kind of parent are you that you didn't even know that your son was living with a mental condition? That's one voice. On the other hand, the inner voice said, you raised such a strong son that he felt he could do it on his own, just like you like to, Mom. Hmm. Uh, it was, uh, and Cameron had had a very, very difficult life. He was born extremely asthmatic. He was raised in a hospital. And if one of my kids is in the hospital, I'm in the hospital with them. Uh, I saw him blue too many times, mm -hmm. too many times. Uh, we had <laughs> a frequent rider pass at the hospital. <laughs> All we had to do was come in and say, Cameron's here, and they'd immediately push us through to the uh, oxygen and all that kind of stuff. So he was a sick boy. Uh, I didn't realize that Asperger's and the need for structure and the slight little hints of social um, inappropriateness would show up periodically, but I thought he was just being weird <laughs> because, you know, he was so multifaceted. Uh, so he started self-medicating with alcohol and then that progressed into the world of drugs and by the time uh, <laughs> eight suicide attempts mm. eight wow. uh, at one point a psychiatrist honestly said because he was he had turned into a bit of a wackadoodle by the end of this and he was full-blown schizophrenic uh, at one point, a psychiatrist, and I said, what can I do for him? And the psychiatrist said, lock him up and throw away the key. They said that? The psychiatrist what? in the hospital said to me, within earshot of Cameron. Oh, so I think, but my response was <clears throat> heartfelt. When he repeated it the third time, I turned to him and said, I need you to stop saying that. And if you have nothing else to say, then please go away. Hmm. I did not yell at him. I said it just like that. And he turned on his heel and left. Oh. That was harsh. That mm -hmm. was very harsh. Uh, but at any rate, so Cameron was living on the streets for a while, and he had... It was awful. It was absolutely awful. We had him in three different facilities, rehab facilities. Um, but because he was so intelligent, he could see through what everybody was doing. 
and he'd tune out a month before they finished talking because he already knew where the conversation was going. At any rate, it was heartbreaking uh, for more than just it was heartbreaking, but he had cleaned up. He was oh. he was looking for employment. He had the body was always his temple, but during this period he was vastly overweight, and that just wasn't who he was. Uh, he wasn't living who Cameron was. It must have been someone else in there playing. But he had cleaned up, and he was himself, and he was he was actually training the other people at this facility, CrossFit training. And he was supplying their fitness routines for them, and, and he was looking for work. And then he used one more time, and mm. he just went to sleep, as fentanyl does. And how many years ago was that? Almost three. Okay. Almost three. Uh, strangest thing. I went to a, how we deal with grief. It's such a personal, nobody can say, I know how you feel. No. Please, if ever someone says, never say you know how, you, how they feel. We can't. I, I can try and know what you feel. I can try. I can, I, I, but we can't know. I went to this uh, workshop. And I, first of all, I went with a, less than good attitude but second of all um, it was a total waste of expensive time except for one part at one point someone had us doing an exercise of uh, hugging a tree we actually went outside <laughs> and we were hugging a tree well I have no problem with that I think I think mother nature is oh, <laughs> do not mess with mama nature she will get you uh, I view <laughs> I view Mama Nature as a big lady going oh no you didn't <laughs> um, but at any rate I'm hugging this tree and uh, I'm paying homage to the brilliance that is the tree I mean it's alive it's got sap it's it's got babies it has a life cycle and I'm hugging this tree and I am weeping uh, about Cameron and the tears are running down my face, mixed with bugs out of the tree and bark, and it was lovely to look at. And we hugged this thing for a good 15 minutes solid, just standing there communing with the tree. Then the instructions were to turn around and pick up the first rock that caught our eye. And so I turned around, and there was a plain-looking rock, and I picked it up, and I immediately dropped it because it was buzzing in my hand. It was like there was electricity in it. Mm. It was na 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 na. So I went and I picked up this rock again, and again it buzzed. And all of a sudden, and I know this sounds weird, and I'm not a tootsie fruitsy kind of person, but all of a sudden, I could hear my son's voice in my head saying, "Mom, you know I was born to die." And it all came flooding back the severe illnesses, how many times I saw him a half a second away from death as a child, his, his uh, ulcer at age nine, his, uh, he had a very difficult health life, even though he was a gymnast. And this rock said, Mom, you know I had to die. I have that rock. I've kept it. 
It's in my, it's in my office. And if ever, and it's all a game in my head, but it's a soothing game to me. And if ever I want to talk to my son, I pick up the rock and it buzzes in my hand. Mm. And I just say, I'm thinking of you. And I shed a tear or two. And then I smile at him. And then I put the rock down and go on with my day. Um, very interesting how we deal with grief. Mm -hmm. There was no chance to say goodbye. There was no, uh, it was just get a phone call. Your son is dead. That comment that I heard him say, uh, which is all in my head, and maybe I'm just feeding my own ego, but it says to me that uh, he was capable of handling his own situation and that he was grateful for the tools that we had given him to go that far. Uh, that may be completely, and here's my word of the day, solipsistic, completely self-centered. Uh, but it, it gave me uh, a tremendous sense of, of release. Mm. And the belief that because even through all of that, uh, the lines of communication were open. Uh, he could call, we could talk about anything, we could, there was no judgment, it was just, where are you, what you doing, what do you need? Uh, which is why I stand so firmly in, it doesn't matter what troubles you're having, with whom, keep the communication lines over. Don't put up the shut up. Don't put up the white flag. Just keep the door open. At any rate, so uh, we've we've moved past that, but that was single-handedly the most horrific thing uh, I can imagine going through. I was wondering how you went about not getting back to that old habit, says when you were an eleven-year-old and and you put it on yourself for your yeah. family's suffering, and and you were you were able to not apply that. Mm -hmm. to the that situation and and I think you've you've illustrated some of the tools that you've used and and mm -hmm. some of the process that you went through but I'm is there is there anything else that that might be helpful for people Well first of all you have to allow yourself to grieve for as long as it takes as short as it takes uh others perceptions can't come close to understanding what you're going through even if someone else has lost a child too it's it it is not the same journey for everyone uh the sounds that emanated from my mouth when my husband told me that Cameron was dead were not it wasn't weeping it wasn't wailing it was keening it was my soul breaking well that takes a long time to heal mm -hmm. as you can see it's not quite healed but uh i didn't I gave myself permission to do exactly what I needed to do. Uh, and my husband and I, uh, who have seen both of our kids through some torture, uh, have developed, unfortunately, we've had an opportunity to develop these wonderful coping mechanisms. When I fall, he rises. When he falls, I rise. Hmm. Uh, mm. I could not have done it without him. 
our previous episode, we had Heather McLeod on talking about the loss of her husband Brock to cancer. And um, we, we spent a lot of time talking about grief. And, and one of the takeaways from that was just what you've been saying. There's no proper way to grieve. No. Everyone grieves differently. And the analogy that was used was with the ocean and the waves that come. Mm-hmm. And they come. Some are bigger, some are smaller. Uh, we just have to surf them the best we can. And and uh, it was it was a nice discussion. You know, I found the most peace purely serendipitously serendipitousness Seren- there was serendipity involved you know, that's why I never say that word because <laughs> it's just too <laughs> it's too complicated yeah. <laughs> uh, I was feeling you know really down really blue and uh, my husband knows that I take uh, great enjoyment out of listening to water mm. so he trundled me off into the car and off we went to uh, uh, one of the beaches on Vancouver Island and I'm listening. It's a gray, gray, blustery day. It's about the same color as my mood. And we get down to the beach, and I hear the sound of an eagle. And I look up, and there's a bald eagle flying overhead. And I astonished myself by saying and breathing out, thank you, thank you for being here. Where the heck did that come from? I don't know, but it fell out of my face. and it was lovely, and it was lovely, and it brought me great joy to see this majestic eagle flying overhead. And we sat at the beach for a while, and then it was, it was okay. And just as we're going to leave, and I'm still going, okay, back to it. Uh, all of a sudden, my dog said, my, my husband said, are there dogs barking? And we turn around, but no, in fact, what it is, is a pot of sea lions mm-hmm. just out in the water playing <laughs> and barking and doing flips and all kinds of, they were playing now I don't know if they were playing or not but it sure looked like they were playing playing and uh, what went through my mind was that even on this dark gloomy windy nasty day when I am engulfed in grief and woe an eagle can go overhead and I can find majesty in that. And then I turn around and I see that play is still possible. It is possible still to find joy. It is possible to keep living. It is possible to rise out out of the dark gray waters of a stormy day and play. Mm. And that did more that it wasn't planned. It was pure happenstance. And I went home feeling much, much more able to cope that joy would come again. And of course it does. Mm-hmm. And of course it does. But that was a, a, a sign to me that, and I don't believe in signs and I don't believe in any of that stuff. But it was pretty hard to negate what I felt. So uh, we do things in our mind uh, out of the evidence that we see and we turn it to what we need. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful story, and and carrying through that grief is an ocean metaphor. So thank you so much for sharing that, and and the process that you went through, and and the observations that you then had that that you opened yourself up to. 
My daughter said it well, because my daughter and my son were doppelgangers. They would finish each other's sentences. They never fought. Uh, my mother, my daughter is a born mother. It was what she was put on this planet to do. Everything broken or sick or in need finds its way to her doors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Cameron was sick. So she was the caregiver. She was. She could make him smile when nobody else could. So when she heard of Cameron's death, she collapsed into a puddle on the floor. She was actually at our house. And she wasn't crying. She just turned into a mass of, a gelatinous mass of nothing. She described it very well a little while later when she said, Mom, this dark is so big and so widespread there are no edges. I can't find mm-hmm. anything to pick at to try and get through to the light. Well, the seals in the water were was my edge to pick at, to start start carving a hole through which to find something better. Another method that we've heard people speak about in in their own experience is contribution mm-hmm. and being a part of something outside yourself and giving people tools and the ability to overcome their own obstacles or, or live a more fulfilled life. And in the work that you do now, helping people find confidence and helping people speak effectively and provide their message with, with meaning and aligned with their values. And I'm curious, what, what is your why now? What is, what is the, the sole reason that you do the work that you do? People are brilliant. Everybody has something to say, something to show, some, some little piece of brilliance found in them. What good does it do if you can't tell anyone? Our younger generations are brilliant. They are they know more at earlier stages uh, and they're, they're becoming trained in analytical thought rather than just rote memory. The school system is changing and our young people are getting brighter faster. They have problem-solving skills. What they don't have is a way of connecting them for other people to hear. The language that we use in our head is not the language that other people can understand. We have a shorthand in our head uh, where we have a concept and an emotion and it gets salted away into a nice little bundle, but it speaks to us, not to anybody else. Our world is moving so quickly, there is so much to share. And if we can't speak well enough to share it in all its brilliance, if we haven't got the tools to connect what we know to what they need. If, if we can't find a way to make them speak our language, then we have to speak theirs. There is no point in speaking Swahili to a German-speaking audience. You have to have the confidence to know that you can engage them before you will recognize any success with so many ideas floating around and so many people who would rather die than have to give a eulogy at a funeral, so many people so terrified 
of being vulnerable on a stage because so many eyes are on them and someone's going to judge them and all of the reasons that people find to be completely terrified of public speaking, they're all valid. But if you can make, if you can make one life better because you had the courage to stand and deliver, what kind of a world would this be if we all learned how to listen and if we all knew how to speak so that others could understand? And what's more, and this is a really big part, if the whole world would make music together, there would be no war. Because you can't think of negative things when you're involved in a score of music. You can, there is only the music. If only we could have one day a year where the whole world made music together. The bonds that are created over that shared experience of creating beauty, it never dies. Now turn that into the world of speaking. Turn that into the world of politicians. Turn that into the world of sales. Turn that into whatever world you want. If we learn to listen and speak, taking turns and knowing what our values are, that's what I'm trying to do. In my own little tiny one foot after the other way, I'm trying to make the world just a little bit better than when I found it. So people can find out much more about what you do and all the great wisdom that you have to share from your website, confidentstages.com. Yes. Where you can also find the fantastic blog, which I spent quite a long time this morning pouring over and I will go back to because it it speaks a lot about not only the public speaking and and tools that you can acquire through that but also how leadership presents itself in very modern society Mm. how principles from a little ways back in time can be applied and and how to bridge some generation gaps that are very present in today's workplace culture. That they are. And that's a matter of values too. It's pure and simple that the value system has changed. Where once uh, after the war, security, that was the major value on everybody's mind. We were all worried that the Russians were coming. We were all worried that that, uh, uh, there'd be another war and the bottom would fall out of the economy. It was all about security. Today, we're not worried about security. Today, we don't like what we're being offered. We get up of our chair and we walk. Mm. Well, that's a real, really, uh, that's a reality that many companies have yet to wrap their little minds around. Totally. Well, of course, you're very active on social media. We already spoke about LinkedIn. I've seen you on, you have a Facebook page as well. So these are all great places where people can connect with you. Yes. As a way to maybe perhaps bring this conversation to a bit of a close. I mean, we'd love to talk all day, but our... Probably our listeners might not have time. <laughs> so one question I did have I'm curious about is, what does music look like in your life today? I'm not doing any. Music has definitely not gone from my life. Yeah. I still have a baby grand piano in my, in my uh, lower level, and uh, it is absolutely wonderful. Uh, and I share the gift with my grandchildren and anybody else that wants to learn. I do voice training. Uh, for not only speaking but music but as for performing it I was saying to myself the other day self I said you're missing some of the core joy find a way to get music back in your life Mm -hmm. because it isn't right now I'm in the world of speaking now the difference is though that 
music has created my thought process about the word of speaking. I hear speaking as a kind of music. So when I'm teaching people to speak, I'm adding to their orchestra. I'm it, If they're only playing on a guitar, a bass, and drums, that's fine if that's the audience they want to reach. But if they want to reach a different kind of audience, maybe we have to bring in some saxophones. Maybe we've got to bring in a trumpet. So I just keep adding to their toolkit the same way as an orchestra gets built. Mm. So although I'm not actively engaged in music, again, a problem soon to be solved, but music creates a structure for incredible beauty. And that same structure works for words. I even wondered just about your listening habits. Oh, listening habits. Oh, we are so eclectic. <laughs> we listen to everything from Bach and Beethoven uh, and Tchaikovsky all the way through to uh, 21 Pilots. Mm. Love those guys. Yeah, aren't they incredible? Yeah. Uh, and everything along the way. Now, uh, we have this little habit is that after supper time, my husband will put music on, and the whole world, our whole house, was designed around sound. The lower level is all designed around the TV room, and it's built-in speakers and all that kind of thing. And the upstairs is all built around the stereo. Hello, it's our world. Mm-hmm. So after supper, we just go, okay, what are we in the mood to groove in? And we'll just play a game of cards or play a game of something, but mostly what we're doing is we're just taking in the music and mm-hmm. getting getting funky with it you know uh, and it continues to feed me and when I'm very down when I'm when I'm just going I think I either have to sleep or go f- drop myself in a lake or something I'll put on music yeah carefully chosen because I react so completely to it hmm. uh, music is uh, while I'm not performing anymore it's still very much part of and I suppose it creates a belief system that the, there's a structure to music that you have to know in order to find enough freedom to get out of it. Yeah, my, my dad was a workaholic and, and struggled his whole life to relax. And that's the only time I can remember him relaxing mm-hmm. is I would come in the living room and he'd be laying on his recliner with massive headphones over his ears and uh, just the serene look on his face. Yes. Yeah, and he, he was an opera man, so I've never forgotten that image. It's wonderful. I find it interesting how classical music has found its way into even our cartoons. Watch a Bugs Bunny sometimes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. When I was teaching grade two music in an inner city school uh, to children that had never noticed music at all, I'd put down the on the Daffy Ducks and the Bugs Bunny and say, okay, now listen to that song. And then I'd pull out the score for it, and we'd teach them to at, in a grade two level. Cool. Uh, and now they know classical music, and they feel like all that and that bag of chips again. <laughs> Do you have any final requests or observations or offerings for anyone listening right now? I would like to say that you cannot know anyone else until you know yourself. And that sounds trite, and it sounds banal. But please have a look at what you believe in. Please discover what your line is in the sand is. Discover what you believe, but also decide to what lengths you will go to defend that belief. You don't have to do anything about it. You just have to decide. Are you 
and it, and it starts simply, are you more left-brained or right-brained? Do you think logically, reasonably, remove the emotion? Or are you emotion-driven, using your brain to rationalize what your gut wants you to do? Start there. Understand that we're all, we both have left and right brain. But which one do you go to in times of trouble? Which one is your, and then celebrate it. Celebrate it with every ounce that you've got. If you're an emotional person, go do something wild and crazy. If you want to watch a sappy movie and cry, go for it. If, on the other hand, you're the mathematical wizard and finds beauty in numbers, then do that too. And, and celebrate who you are because, you know, everybody else is taken. <laughs> well, uh, we talked about values a lot today and I really appreciated that part of the conversation and John and I talk about our values of authenticity and I just want to express how much we value your authenticity for coming on today being vulnerable and thank you so much providing us these gifts my pleasure my pleasure Thanks. you are doing wonderful work having people share their obstacles and how they because we need ideas we need options mm -hmm. and you are providing that to your listeners so you're doing a great service thank you thank you and for the record you said that our acoustics are pretty good in here I so did. that's great we had a professional opinion <laughs> Woo very yeah. nice thank you thank Cheers. you well that's the episode Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. We appreciate your time and attention. If we can make one request, please subscribe. How do you do that, John? They push subscribe. That's all you got to do. We also got social media, guys. We've got Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Please like us and follow us there. We also got a really fancy website. ObstacleCoursePodcast.com. That is the one. It's where you'll find our show notes and lots of other goodies. And if you have somebody who'd be great for the podcast, please let us know. Send us a message on any of those networks and we'll bring them on. Mm -hmm, for sure. We're always looking for good people. Thanks for listening. Keep pushing through those obstacles. <laughs>